in C.S. Lewis's uh, famous book, The Screwtape uh, Letters, Uncle uh, Screwtape, uh, this senior demon who is instructing his inexperienced nephew, uh, an associate demon uh, named Wormwood, he's instructing him in the art of how to guide a human being to hell. And in this instruction, he, he warns him that his task is made a lot more difficult because, quote, the enemy, God, has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into sons. I'm not sure how you feel about being identified as vermin, but God is in that kind of work. The work of turning sinners, those alienated from God, into sons. From vermin to sonship. And it reveals one of the radical changes that occurs when a person becomes a Christian. They become a child of God. They were not a child of God. They were an image bearer of God, created in His image. But then they become a child of God. They, they have this new standing, new status. They're a part of this new family. And this, in a lot of ways, is the focus this morning as we continue in this letter, First uh, John, uh, written by the Apostle John, sonship, becoming a child of God. And it strikes at one of the central themes of the Christian faith. It's the theme of identity. Who am I? It seems to me there's at least three main sort of uh, compartments or arenas that ought to be shaping the way we understand our identity as Christians. One is who we are now. Two is who we are becoming. And three is who we will be. Who we are now, who we will become, and who we will be. All three of these are, are woven together in no particular order. All three of these uh, woven in the text this morning of 1 John chapter 3. It's the first ten verses of uh, the third chapter. So let's give our attention to God's Word. John continues. 1 John chapter 3. He writes... See, look what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one 
who does not love his brother. Uh, The Puritan John Owen said, If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? This is where, in part, I hope we're headed in this text to be delighting in our minds and hearts uh, in our Heavenly Father because this great love has made us, if we are His, sons and daughters. And, and here's a statement I think captures uh, fairly well this text as a whole. And it's this. As a child of God, you will delight yourself in Him by evidencing a pursuit after consistent righteousness as you long for the day when you will be like Christ permanently. As a child of God, or we might say if, there's an if, if you are a child of God, you will delight yourself in Him by showing forth a pursuit after consistent righteousness as you are looking forward to that day when you will be made like Christ permanently, forever. This is a text about who the Christian is as a child of God. It's a text about who the Christian is becoming as one growing in the righteousness and holiness of the Lord. And it is about who the Christian or the child of God will be on that final day when Christ visits us, when Christ appears. John opens this chapter with, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we see the the familial family language of a father and of his children. Families are a tremendous uh, blessing. One of the things that is new about the New Testament is how prevalent the language, the family language is of God as Father. It's in the Old Testament, but uh, much, much less. It's riddled throughout the New Testament as our Father and we as His children. Families are a blessing. The family of God uh, is a blessing. I know one of the great joys in my time serving here at PCC has been to hear on a number of occasions, even in the last few years, of the wonderful news that God is adding uh, a person, a, a new life to someone's family, a husband and wife, perhaps their first child or second or third or fourth, whatever number it might be. And then months go by and the, the wonderful news of hearing of the birth of that person into this world. And the beautiful uh, thing of seeing that child start to participate and attend worship as, as a part of this covenant community engrafted in. Even to hear at times, we heard it this morning in Sunday school, some of the cries of children. Not that we would want children crying. It's probably a reflection of pain at some level, but it's, it's a picture of new life, isn't it? It's a tremendous blessing. Having three children of my own, two of whom were born at home on purpose, uh, and my wife continuing to teach a natural childbirth uh, classes over the years, uh, Kind of the world of birth and newborns continues to be a part of our family's experience. And I remember with the birth of our own children, one of the new phenomena to me that struck me and still strikes me as amazing is the first breath that a child takes for months and months in the womb up to the point of birth itself. The child's lungs are filled with fluid. They receive oxygen through the umbilical cord, the placenta, Within seconds of the birth, the child's lungs are transformed through a process I could not explain, and it takes its first breath for the first time. 
from conception to the development of this human life to the first breath, it's all really extraordinary. And yet even more extraordinary, we would say supernatural, is the birth of the children of God. Not a physical birth, but spiritual birth. New birth in Jesus Christ. How does one become a child of God? As John refers to believers in verse 9 of our text, those born of God. The Apostle John likes to use this language of new birth in speaking about salvation and our identity as the children of God. In in the first chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, we're told Christ came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of blood, or of the will of man, but born of God. Two chapters later, in John chapter 3, John records Jesus' words that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is that new spiritual birth as one responds to the gospel message, that message about Christ's atoning death for sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates the heart, penetrates the heart, the core of a person, and replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And then there's the demonstration of repentance and trust, faith in Christ. But what's behind that birth? What's behind that birth is the love of a father. See, John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love is this? If you and I were living in the first century in a Greek seaport town, we might be going about our daily routine, daily business, and then suddenly we would begin to hear maybe sounds down near the docks. And uh, word would perhaps spread through the town that a ship uh, was coming in. And people might make their way down to the docks to see whether this ship was from their own country or from a foreign nation. And you might even hear people saying in Greek, potopane, potopane, meaning from what country? From what country? What new things might these foreigners introduce to us? What might they teach us? What new things? This is the word translated what kind in verse 1 of our text. What kind of love is this? From what country? From what foreign place? It's the same word the astonished disciples said and spoke when in the midst of that storm, in the boat with Jesus, Jesus calmed the storm. And the disciples said, what manner of man is this? Where does this man come from? that even the wind and the waves obey Him. What kind of love is this? It is a foreign love. It's the only kind of love that provides the remedy to man's fundamental broken condition, his sinfulness, his separation from God. Shelley and I are reading a book right now called Why We Are Restless, The Modern Search for Contentment. And the author's quote from Peter Kreef, he says, The God of the Gospels both shows man to himself and provides the answer to the question of human longing. 
He says, man is like a very strangely shaped lock with weird protuberances and indentations. And Christianity is like a key, an equally strangely shaped key that fits the lock. We are a strange people. We are broken. Sin has twisted, broken, and imprisoned uh, the very heart of man. But it is this foreign love, this great love of God that brings new life and forgiveness and hope, freedom, sonship. John says, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when He appears, we shall be like Him. Perhaps that we would not be uh, discouraged or, or downcast or despairing when we look in the mirror spiritually and we're saddened by the lack of growth in our own Christian lives. John reminds us not only that we're children now, but at the resurrection, at the visitation of Christ as He appears, we will be forever changed. Glorified yet still bearing the family name. Adopted and engrafted into God's family. Who we are now is the children of God. Who we will become is like Christ forever, permanently. But who are we becoming? Perhaps that's more of, of the text that fills these verses. Who are we becoming as the children of God? So John doesn't only identify the bookends of the Christian life, our, our regeneration, our being uh, adopted into the family of God. And then on the other end, the, the, our, the glory that is ours at the coming of Christ. But he, he addresses the pages in between those bookends. And a central characteristic on the pages of a believer's life is growth or consistent Pursuit after righteousness. A practicing and consistent pursuit after holiness. Note the motivation in John's mind for this kind of life. Pursuing a holy life. It comes in verse 3. He says, Everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. On that last day, we shall, we shall be like Christ, perfectly, permanently conformed. But for John, our perfect and permanent conformity to Christ on that day is what ought to be driving us to live after Christ now. In other words, if we're going to be like Christ in the end, we must seek to be like Christ now. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself. His motivation is not a set of precepts, commands, or rules, as important as those are. It's first, hope in Christ. Love for Christ. It's a higher love and a greater devotion to Him. And the one who loves Christ will seek to live after Him, after His ways, after His commands. Now, you, you might have heard these words or read them before and, and see what might appear to be a contradiction in John's language. In verse 6 and 9, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
But if you recall back in chapter 1, verse 8, he said, if we say we have no sin, or we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Well, which is it, John? Does the Christian no longer sin, or will he continue to sin? Yes. On the one hand, the remnants of the old sin nature continue to surface and manifest itself in various ways. Every true born-again Christian experiences that. Yet the believer has a new nature. As Paul says in Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And with that new nature, he's no longer, she is no longer mastered by that nature, that sin nature. And therefore will not have a life characterized by sin, but a life characterized by pursuing righteousness. Key word that John inserts here is practice or practices. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. On the other hand, verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. The the word practice here carries the idea of manufacturing or building or forming something. I think John is saying that one is either building a life characterized by growth and godliness, or one is building a life that reflects wickedness. And what we build and form is the result of whether we have been born of God or not. If we want to know whether we've been born of God, the desire and the pursuit after righteousness is central. Is there a desire? Is there a pursuit after holiness? We all know uh, sin is a serious matter. Scripture tells us that The wages of sin is death. Death is the result of sin. And yet, as serious as sin is, I think equally, if not more serious, is a person's view or attitude towards sin. One's attitude toward it reflects their condition before God. John's not teaching... Uh, or suggesting a sinless life, some kind of perfectionism. Indeed, true Christians have uh, struggled uh, greatly with sin. Some of the great saints, we read and hear testimony of this. True Christians wrestle with sin. True Christians uh, experience discouragement by sin surfacing and resurfacing. Perhaps the most mature Christian who ever lived, the Apostle Paul. We know what he says in Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That is a man wrestling. But that's just it. He's convicted. He sees the seriousness of sin. He recognizes sin. He hates sin. 
But I think we can say the, the one thing the Christian cannot be towards sin, for sure, is indifferent. Indifferent. One person said you can be no more indifferent to sin than you could be indifferent to a rattlesnake living in your house. If you've got rattlesnakes roaming around your house and you do not care, we need to talk. But this is, this is about much more than a pursuit after obedience. It's about a pursuit after loving obedience. There's a difference. Remember John's words, the same John who authored the book of Revelation as he was writing those first chapters to the churches. And he writes in chapter 2 to, to the church in Ephesus. Revelation 2.3, he says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. You're enduring patiently, bearing up. You've not grown weary. We might say, you're being dutiful. Dutiful righteousness is sometimes what we have uh, to offer. Duty's good. But John urges that we rekindle that first love for Christ there in Revelation. Where our life after Him is more than duty. It is delight. Delighting in our Father because of His great love for us. What does this look like for you? in your life, or for me, to rekindle that first love for our Lord Jesus Christ. As we live out our Christian faith, knowing who we are as the children of God, who we will be today as we become those growing in righteousness, if you are a child of God, fighting the good fight of the faith, putting off the old self, putting on uh, the new self, it is easy to forget that what ought to be shaping us the most is something that has happened long before you and I were ever born. John inserts two verses, two truths here, two points that ought to be giving us encouragement and hope in our pressing forward in, in our pursuit after holiness. Verse 5 and 8. Verse 5, he says, You know that He, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. Christ came to take away sins. He not only suffered the penalty of sin in our place, shedding His blood as an atonement for sin, but He killed the reigning power of sin and gave to us His Spirit that we might live in righteousness. He came to take away sin, to deal with sin. And then verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Two of our great enemies. These two verses alone remind us our Lord Jesus went to war for us as His people. War against sin. War against the evil one. It reminds us what ought to be giving shape to us most of all. Not the events taking place today, 
but events long ago when our precious Savior made His way to that hill called Golgotha. Calvary, the place of the skull. When in love, that foreign love, He took on His back that cross. Walked to that place where our sin would be nailed through His hands and feet. Where precious, spotless blood would pour out. Where the evil one would be bound. This is what ought to shape us most. This is what we ought to cling to. As we awake each new day, uh, there's much that may grab our attention, demand our attention, our daily responsibilities, relationships, work, life's trials and challenges. John's reminding us that what's most formative in our faith journey is not what's right before us, but what has already occurred. Christ was crucified. Christ is risen. Christ is ruling. And so the author of Hebrews tells us, let us fix our eyes on Him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray together. Lord, how we praise You for this great and awesome love that You have demonstrated through the cross of Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Friend. We praise You, Lord, that You are a Father full of love, with a heart of love. And, O oh Lord, we pray that by Your grace and the working of Your Spirit in us, that You would cause the eyes of our hearts to be fixed upon Him. That You would daily restore to us the joy of our salvation. That it would fuel us, move us to live after You. Indeed, resting upon Your grace, that grace that is our foundation, that is sufficient when we fall, but yet that grace that fuels our hearts to love You all the more. And so, walk with us, O Lord, for Your Spirit indwells us as the One who convicts and encourages encourages, comforts, and leads us in the way everlasting. Help us, O Lord, to walk after You. Help us, Lord, to not only love You, but to love the body of Christ. And Lord, as You do that work in us, we will continue to worship You, to seek You, to give You the praise that is due Your name. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.